Well, good afternoon. Um, we, might, we might as well get started. Uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce our visiting speaker, Professor Andrew Rotter. He's a Charles Dana professor at Colgate University, where he's taught for some time now. After doing his graduate work at Stanford University, he's also president of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. And he's the author of three major books, the most recent of which will form the basis for his remarks today. His first book was uh, called The Path to Vietnam, which was uh, a path-breaking book in, in many respects on the economic and, and strategic uh, dimensions of the earliest U.S. commitments to Indochina in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And he wrote another very important book on U.S.-Indian relations, stressing the cultural dimensions of the Indo-American tension and antagonism during the first phase of the, of the uh, Cold War. Probably as much as anyone within the field of U.S. international history or U.S. diplomatic history, he's been a pioneer in what's come to be called the cultural turn, in which historians have devoted much more attention to the cultural dimensions of foreign relations and international history. And he will also be uh, around this afternoon meeting informally with my graduate seminar beginning at 2.30. And for anyone who might be interested, the meeting will take place between 2.30 and 4.30 uh, upstairs in the third floor seminar room. So please join me in welcoming Andrew Rutter. Thank you, Bob. Thanks very much. Um, I guess if I stay close to the mic, I don't need the other one. Can you hear me? Uh, I, I appreciate you all coming. I, I do need to begin, as, as one should never begin a talk, with uh, an apology. In fact, in this case, a, a pair of apologies, uh, one anticipated and one not so much. Um, I didn't get the memo about this being a, a lunchtime talk, a mealtime talk, and um, I'm going to encourage you to eat up because uh, – I'm going to talk about the victims of bombing, and it's not pleasant hearing, um, so uh, I, I forgive me in advance for spoiling your meal, but uh, as I say, I'll, I'll drag my feet a little bit at the outset in hopes that you can at least get most of your meal down before I start on, on the bad stuff. The other apology is that uh, I'm going to read a bit, and I, I'm going to read from my own work, which is... Uh, not the sort of thing historians usually do and probably the sort of thing historians shouldn't do. We've all been to authors' readings by real writers, writers of fiction usually, or writers of kind of journalistic, lively nonfiction. And while I think the prose in my book isn't bad, um, I'm not so arrogant as to believe that I have the kind of lilt and grace that a, a good novelist has. Uh, uh, and so uh, it is with some trepidation that I'm, I'm going to read. But th there's a reason why. And, and the reason is I want to do a very explicit comparison between two events in the American bombing of Japan in 1945. And I think both of these events will be familiar to all or most of you. The first one, the uh, so-called conventional or firebombing attack on Tokyo on the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945, and then the second event, obviously, and this is uh, the subject of my book, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima on August 6th, 1945. Uh, I'm going to do this 
as a way of uh, deconstructing my own uh, unapprehended thinking as I wrote the book, as I wrote the passages to the book, I, in, in some ways, and I suppose this is true of all of us, we, we, we write something and then uh, off it goes to publication or so we hope and out it comes and there are reviews for good or ill and on we go to the next project with, without much uh, retrospective thinking, at least on my part, about uh, my process. How did I come to make the choices I did, um, deciding which events should be included, decided how they should be rendered up, uh, but this book, I think, more than my others, uh, made me think that way, in part, I think, because of the subject matter, because it's about the atomic bombing. Um, and uh, I realized, stepping back after the book was out, that uh, I had implicitly made a number of choices about the events I chose to include. And, and specifically today, obviously, the, the comparison I want to make is between a, you know, a fire bombing and an and atomic bombing. So uh, that's the apologies. Um, now let me offer a, a, a pair of backstories before I get to the, the reading part. Um, one of them concerns the book itself, the larger work from which these, these excerpts are drawn. Um, they're part of a book, obviously, on the atomic bomb. They come from separate chapters in the middle of the book. Uh, and that derivation tells you something important already. Since the focus of the book is the atomic bomb, you can correctly infer that I included the part about the firebombing of Tokyo to provide some context for the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and also Nagasaki, which was bombed on August 9th. Now, I'm hardly alone in telling the story this way. You've all read books, I suspect, about the atomic bomb in which the bombing of Tokyo in March of 1945 and at other times uh, is included. But you should recognize, as I must now do, that this is a choice made by an author. It is not some divinely sanctioned given about how the story is told. And we should recognize that this sets the scene for Hiroshima in a particular way. More on that in a few minutes. Now, the second backstory is an historical one, and this has to do with high-level American decision-making concerning, concerning both bombing raids. Uh, it's a long story. It's a story that many of you know, so I'll summarize it very briefly. When the United States entered World War II following the attack on Pearl Harbor, it was officially, if ambivalently, against the bombing of its adversaries' cities. President Franklin Roosevelt had, in 1939, condemned what he called, quote, the unprovoked bombing and machine gunning of civilian populations from the air. When the first elements of the American Army Air Force arrived in Britain in the spring of 1942 they were instructed not to follow the bombing practices of the Royal Air Force, which included the de-housing of German workers and the less-than-discriminate use of bombs over urban centers. The Americans were to aim instead only at strategic targets, military bases, factories producing weapons or energy for the war, and then only during the day, so the attacks could be they hoped, precise. In these practices, the Americans had little success. Planes were vulnerable to German fighters and flak when they arrived by day. Navigation was not all it might have been. And panicky American air crews dropped their bombs prematurely to avoid German defenses, with the result that the bombs frequently struck civilians anyway. Significantly, 
the American rationale for strategic bombing from the first had not been moral but utilitarian. That is, commanders had felt that bombing bases and factories would work better than bombing undefended people and would end the war sooner. If that now seemed to be untrue, and if they felt no compelling moral reason not to bomb cities, then the Americans might as well join their British counterparts in their attacks on pretty much any structure or anything that moved. That is what happened in Europe after the summer of 1943 when a destructive Allied raid on Hamburg took some 45,000 lives, mostly women, children, and old men. Roosevelt called Hamburg, quote, an impressive demonstration of what might be done by American bombers in Japan. Americans had even fewer scruples about killing Japanese than they had about killing Germans. They considered the Japanese inhuman, representing them in word and image as lice, rodents, and apes. Again, this is history you know. In Germany, there were bad Nazis and good Germans. In Japan, only Japanese, all presumed warlike, fanatical, and evil. Perhaps the best way to offset this initial defeat is to burn Tokyo and Osaka, mused a U.S. military official two days after Pearl Harbor. Only after U.S. forces had secured the Marianas and other Pacific Islands by early 1944 could such a policy be pursued, and even then it took the arrival on the scene of General Curtis LeMay to persuade American flyers to attack cities. In early 1945, LeMay decided he would not attack factories, but neighborhoods. He replaced, in his state-of-the-art B-29 bombers, high-explosive bombs with incendiaries, pulled all guns and gunners from their turrets to allow more ordnance on board, and ordered his pilots to fly low over their targets, thereby improving bombing accuracy, saving fuel, and reducing the chances that his planes might be hit by enemy gunfire. This brings us to the attack on Tokyo, March 9th and 10th, 1945. Let me read the description of the attack from my book, Lightly Edited. LeMay selected as a site for the incendiaries an area of roughly 12 square miles in eastern Tokyo, encompassing the Asakusa Ward. It had a population density of 103,000 per square mile. On the evening of 9 March, B-29s took off from Guam, Saipan, and Tinian, rendezvoused, and headed west, 334 in all. Each bomber carried up to six tons of napalm, phosphorus, and oil-based incendiaries. Japanese radar detected the force and sounded an early warning at 10.30, but inaccurately reported that the attackers had headed off over the sea. The first of the incendiaries, napalm so as to illuminate the target for the second wave of bombers, came down just after midnight, followed by M69 magnesium cluster bombs that burst just above the ground. Japanese air defense broadcast an attack warning belatedly at 12.15. The fires spread rapidly, enveloping the target area and an additional four square miles besides. Back on Guam, LeMay was uncharacteristically nervous. I'm sweating this one out myself, he told his public information officer. A lot could go wrong, 
I can't sleep. I usually can, but not tonight. He was worried about his crews. There were flak and some interceptors over the city, but the biggest danger the Americans faced was from turbulence, the result of the powerful updrafts caused by the fires below them. Crew members donned oxygen masks to block the stench of napalm and burned flesh. Nearly all the B-29s returned safely to their bases. Earlier attacks, ostensibly on industrial targets, meant that the people of Tokyo were no strangers to the B-29s. Indeed, one of the nicknames given them was regular mail. But they were unprepared for the waves of bombers that set fire to the city after midnight on 10 March. What anti-aircraft batteries they had were deployed near major factories and were aimed not by radar but by searchlights. Tokyo had trenches and some tunnels, but citizens who managed to reach these found them no protection from the oxygen-sucking heat of the fires. Houses were made of wood and paper and tightly packed together. Efforts to cut fire lanes between them had foundered on labor shortages that had left in place the wooden remnants of structures that were demolished. Police, firefighters, and hospital workers were unable to cope with the scope of the disaster they faced. To fight ultra-modern incendiary bombs, wrote Robert Guillain, a French journalist who was in Tokyo during the attack, the populace's basic weapons were straw mats soaked in water, little paper sacks of sand, and, in quantity, water buckets that had to be filled from the cisterns at each house. Families had been told that in case of an attack, they were to protect their homes and avoid panic. Mostly people ran. They wrapped themselves in hooded air cloaks, thickly padded with cotton, gathered together what family they could, and ran, hoping to find a way out of the flames, certain that they would not survive if they stood still. Whipped by a strong wind, the akakazi, or red wind, off the Tokyo Plain, the flames ignited the cloaks and trapped their wearers. Water was their hope. Firefighters tried to douse running people with water, hoping it would protect them from the blaze, or people threw themselves into barrels of water that the parsimonious had placed by their houses to fight fires. People ran to fetid canals and immersed themselves with only their mouths and noses above the water line. But many of them died anyway, gulping at the deoxygenated air, trampled by others frantically seeking relief from the fires, or boiled by the superheated shallow water in which they stood. Others made it to the Sumida River, only to be swept away by the swift current or drowned as the tide rose. Fire or water, they chose their fate. Some ran up rises toward bridges, only to find that the bridge they sought had collapsed, and only then to be crushed or pushed into the water by the crowd that had followed them up the fruitless approach. Or they made it onto an undamaged steel bridge, placed their hands in relief on its railing, and twisted off in agony as they were burned by the scorching metal. The Buddhist temple to Kuan Yin, survivor of the great earthquake and fire of 1923, burned with its monks and refugees and its famous tall ginkgo trees. In the red-light district of Yoshiwara, men died with their prostitutes. Residents of Nihombashi, funneled by police to the Meiji Theater, tried to protect themselves from the flames by lowering the great steel stage curtain only to suffocate 
when toxic fumes penetrated the curtain, which had stuck in place. As the dawn came in Tokyo, survivors of the bombing were caught in a paralysis of wonder, shock, and nausea. The city stank with the sickeningly sweet odor of melted, rotting flesh. A reporter found, quote, long lines of ragged, ash-covered people struggling along, dazed and silent, like columns of ants. Nearly everyone remarked on the astonishing quiet of the eastern part of the city, the silence broken only by the sound of people coughing or calling out to loved ones. Dedicated as they were, policemen, doctors, and civic officials quailed at the task of collecting the dead. In the black Sumida River, countless bodies were floating, clothed bodies, naked bodies, all as black as charcoal. It was unreal, recounted Dr. Kaboto Shigenori. These were all dead people, but you couldn't tell whether they were men or women. You couldn't even tell if the objects floating by were arms and legs or pieces of burnt wood. Many of those who survived the attack <clears throat> felt guilty and apologetic, no matter how badly wounded they were or how much they had lost. Robert Guillain, the French, felt unprecedented hostility from people in Tokyo in the days after the bombing. And after another firebomb attack on 23-24 May burned to the ground Tokyo's military prison, investigators found that while every one of the 400 Japanese inmates had survived, all 62 American aviators imprisoned there had died. Hell could be no hotter, concluded Guillain. No one knew or knows how many died that March night. Some bodies were no doubt uncounted because they were consumed by fire. Others were quickly buried in mass graves so as to eliminate stench and prevent an epidemic. Still others who might have been registered as dead may have left the city prior to the bombing. Gordon Daniels quotes estimates made by officials in Tokyo of between 76,000 and 83,000 killed, though his own guess is closer to 90,000, that roughly 40,000 were injured by the bombing, that is about half the number killed, suggests something of the fire's intensity. That's the end of the first election, the one on the uh, Tokyo bombing. Uh, the fire bombing of Tokyo in March, along with subsequent attacks on the capital and on other Japanese cities, uh, continuing American advances in the South Pacific, the tightening blockade of Japan, and the ominous unwillingness, this is important, of the Soviet Union to mediate surrender talks with the United States, had the Japanese reeling by the middle of summer. Some talked vaguely of capitulating, though most in the military were determined to fight on, even if it meant risking millions of lives during an, an, uh, an American invasion of the home islands. No one wanted to surrender unconditionally, as the Americans were demanding. At the very least, the position and person of Emperor Hirohito had to be preserved. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, the Americans on July 16th had successfully tested an atomic bomb at Alamogordo in New Mexico. The Americans knew the bomb was a weapon of unprecedented power, but they did not see its use as a sharp break with recent practice during the war in which more and more appalling weapons were used and against noncombatants. 
if the Japanese, the Germans having surrendered on May 8th, remained unwilling to give up without condition, then the atomic bomb would be used against them. When Tokyo rejected the Potsdam Declaration in late July, calling for the Japanese to surrender unconditionally or face destruction, the Americans assembled and delivered the first atomic bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, over Hiroshima on August 6th. Here with the second excerpt, which concerns that event, I've edited this a bit more heavily than the first because it's longer. Picadon, they called it. Flash boom. A blinding flash cut sharply across the sky, recalled a history professor who was more than three miles away from ground zero, the spot on the ground over which little boy exploded. There came, all these are quotations, a blank in time, a dead silence, then a huge boom like the rumbling of distant thunder. Lying exhausted on his living room floor after a night's duty as an air warden at his hospital, Dr. Michihiko Hachia was startled by two powerful flashes of light which starkly illuminated a stone lantern in his garden. If he heard the boom that followed, he did not say so in his memoir. Toyofumi Ogura was out walking. Just as I looked toward the sea and noticed the way the waves were sparkling, I saw, or rather felt, an enormous bluish-white flash of light as when a photographer lights a dish of magnesium, a comparison made by more than one survivor. Off to my right, the sky split open over the city of Hiroshima. Seconds later came a dull but tremendous roar as a crushing blast of air pressure assailed me. The flash, as bright as the sun, brought first intense heat, which melted human beings virtually to nothing within a kilometer of ground zero, also called the hypocenter, and burned exposed skin up to two and a half miles away. Seconds later came the blast wave, knocking over hibachi grills and setting fires, flattening wooden buildings for two miles around and concrete structures close to the hypocenter, and tearing the clothes and skin off people, smashing their internal organs and driving splintered glass into their bodies. Finally, unseen and at first unfelt, came radiation, gamma rays, and neutrons that penetrated the skin of many who counted themselves fortunate to have escaped burn and blast. Condensation occurred atop the rising cloud of smoke and dirt and debris, and an ashy black rain fell for an hour and a half, drenching the miserable city with the radiation it contained. Silence. Then bewilderment. I felt as though I had been struck on the back by something like a big hammer, recalled a young woman, and thrown into boiling oil. I felt as though the directions were all changed around. Science fiction. The blast blew so hard that boys working in a field were lacerated by blades of the grass that surrounded them. Absurdity. While birds, insects, lizards, and household pets vaporized, Several survivors remember seeing carp swimming peacefully in ponds hours after the bomb struck, and rats were seemingly unaffected. And horror, as people looked up, dazed, or began to stumble, walk, or run, where? Anywhere else to find water for their burns or thirst. 
medical help or loved ones. We finally came across some living human beings, remembered a primary school student named Iwao Nakamura. But maybe it would be more correct to say we met some people from hell. They were naked and their skin, burned and bloody, was like red rust and their bodies were bloated up like balloons. When I came to my senses, a soldier told Kenzaburo Oye, I found my comrades still standing erect and saluting. When I said, hey, and tapped their shoulders, they crumbled down into ashes. They walked to the rivers and to the slopes of Hijiyami Hill, which seemed to offer relative protection from whatever might come next. At an impromptu aid station in the skirts of Hijiyama, Toyofume Ogura found several women, badly injured, who howled and screamed as if possessed for the children they lost. Nearby was the counterpart to this scene, as children, in agony of pain, cried for their absent mothers. An officer named Matsumura, bloodied at the waist but feeling the tug of duty, made his way to the hillside headquarters of Lieutenant General Yamamoto, his chief of ordnance. Yamamoto glanced at Matsumura, then asked, Is your son, Musuko, safe? The younger man was briefly confused. He had only daughters, as the general knew. Then, seeing Yamamoto smiling, he realized that it was an incredible joke. The general had glimpsed Matsumura's bloody trousers and used a word that meant both son and, in slang, penis. Matsumura was able to assure the general that his musuko was intact. Others hurried to hospitals, hoping to find medical care. Most found disappointment. Of the city's 45 civilian hospitals, only three were sufficiently undamaged to accept and help patients. Both military hospitals were uninhabitable. Over 90% of Hiroshima's doctors and nurses were killed or injured by the bomb. A month after the attack, only 30 doctors were healthy enough to resume their duties. Medicines, supplies, and surgical equipment had been destroyed. Patients who had already been in hospitals now needed urgent care from wounds. And within days, whoever could stand up long enough to help was forced to confront the perplexing phenomenon of seemingly healthy survivors suddenly sickening and dying as if by some evil magic, radiation poisoning, though it took weeks for Hiroshimans to understand what it was. When Ogura's wife, Fumio, died from radiation on 19 August, the death certificate he obtained for her listed the cause of death as heart failure. Makeshift aid stations around the city were overwhelmed. The healthy, or relatively healthy, or walking wounded, administered to the injured, swabbing wounds with iodine. Workers established a system of triage as they tried to save those who seemed to have any hope of surviving. To the consternation of family members, the most severely injured were left on the ground to die. It was already hot by 8 on the morning of 6 August, so Shinbok-su, a Korean woman who had come to Hiroshima with her husband eight years earlier, helped her family, grandma and her children, 7, 4, and 13 months, remove the heavy clothes and protective headgear they had worn in their backyard air shelter the previous alarm-filled night. Sue's husband had gone to work. Then the world turned upside down. Through the darkness, she heard Grandma calling for help. 
She found the old woman lying on top of the baby, trapped by two pillars that had held up the house. Using a knife blade supplied by a neighbor, Sue managed to get them free. She couldn't find the other children. Her husband came home so covered with soot that she failed to recognize him until he spoke. Fire spread to the house as they dug desperately through the rubble. Then soldiers arrived and insisted that they leave, finally dragging them away. They returned the next morning to find the house burned to the ground. Sue found the corpses of her children when she discovered a line of buttons from her son's shirt. Her daughter's charred form was barely visible, curled next to her brother's. You couldn't walk the streets without stepping over the dead, as one man testified. A week after the bombing, Sue and her husband were told they could pick up their children's remains at their school. When they arrived, they were handed two yellow envelopes. They opened them and discovered the vertebrae of adults. They consecrated the bones to the river. Meanwhile, in late August, Sue's husband, who had appeared to suffer no more than a scraped knee, suddenly sickened, and his hair began to fall out. They took the baby and hopped a freight train, laden with demobilized soldiers, and headed for Osaka and more sophisticated treatment. But the next morning he died. His body turned black. Blood seeped from his skin. He smelled awful. A friend told Sue that the government was prepared to pay death benefits to those who had lost family members in the bombing. So Sue went to the Hiroshima City office and filled out the requisite forms. The clerk looked at the family's surname and rejected the application on the grounds that the dead were Koreans. She protested. Her husband and children had died because they were Japanese. Who had suddenly decided we were aliens? I don't know, shrugged the clerk. The orders came from above. Yoshihiro Kimura heard and saw the American plane. He was in third grade and had just arrived at school, though because the teacher had not yet shown up, he and his friends were chatting. There was a bright yellow light, then a big sound, and Yoshihiro was knocked out. He came to when wood falling on his back stunned him with pain. He found his sister, and they hurried home. They discovered rubble, then their father. Their mother, he told them, dully, was dead, killed instantly when a nail penetrated her skull. They must leave the city. They sheltered that night under a railway bridge, warming themselves when the rain and wind sprang up by the fires of burning houses. There were almost no ordinary-looking people there. They had swollen faces and black lips. Yoshihiro got thirsty and went to the river to drink. There were so many corpses there, he had to keep pushing them aside to find room to dip the water. The next day, they reached a relative's home in the countryside. Yoshihiro kept crying for his mother. On the 15th, his sister died. A hard death, he remembered, for her eyes were open, staring at me. Eventually, Yoshihiro's father remarried, and the family moved back to Hiroshima, I hate war now from the bottom of my heart, Yoshihiro told interviewers six years later. I don't hate anybody because mother is dead, but I hate war. So those are the two excerpts from the book. What does my 
rendering of these two attacks tell us about them, or rather about one historian's understanding of them? Well, the first thing to say is that the language I use to describe the effects of the attacks is quite similar in both cases, and that that I am thus making an implicit comparison between the two. I'm very interested in in language, and it was surprising to me in retrospect that somehow I hadn't been paying close, explicit attention to the language I was using when I did the writing. You know how writing is. Sometimes it comes from somewhere you don't really understand, and that's what happened here. But on going back over it, I realized, as you probably did yourself just listening to this, how similar the language was in describing these two Events. Now, some similarity of prose is to be expected since I wrote both passages, but I acknowledge that my choice of vocabulary, my syntax, the overall tone of my treatment of the bombings had to have been on some level intentional, deep down without really recognizing it. I must have meant the passages to sound alike. I must have wanted to be relatively terse, at least for me. I know I wanted color Uh, detail that included the use of names, adjectives that conveyed the pain and bewilderment felt by the bombing's victims. I wanted in both cases, certainly, to show the wounded and dead through the eyes of the living, for I knew that my readers would place themselves among the living and, I hoped, feel moved by the plight of the afflicted. I don't know if you felt angry when you heard my accounts, but I can tell you that for better or worse, I did not feel angry when I wrote them. I felt sad because families were broken and I was sickened by the suffering I rendered up and I felt in retrospect a little ashamed at the voyeurism that must, I think, be part of telling the story of other people's suffering. Speaking of voyeurism, I wonder if you noticed how often the excerpts observed the bomb victims' nakedness. Now, again, in fairness to myself, this was much commented upon by the bombing survivors in both cities. People had their clothes burned or blown off. There was a nearly universal sense of exposure in both Tokyo and Hiroshima. This seemed one particular mark of distinction between those evidently damaged by the attacks and those not. No one likes to be seen naked in public. When I dream that I'm naked, usually in front of a class or a group like this, I feel sheepish or foolish on awaking. What comes through in the Japanese accounts is something deeper, and that is a sense of utter shame at having been exposed before strangers. Equally of interest, though more harrowing to contemplate, is the horror of an even greater public exposure. That caused by the loss not only of clothing, but of skin. The body beneath the skin is not meant to be seen. The uncovering of bone, muscle, and organ done by napalm or the atomic bomb is a boundary violation of the first order. It fascinated, sickened, and embarrassed people who witnessed or experienced it. It was not intentional, but again accidental, that both accounts sound so prominently elemental. And I mean this in a couple of ways. 
from one thing, and, and leaving out an earlier discussion in the book about the elements, literal elements, uranium and plutonium, I was surprised at my frequent references to the elements as the ancient Greeks defined them. You may recall that there were four, air, earth, fire, and water, and all of them are invoked over and over in my descriptions. Air conveyed the B-29s to their targets. Air buffeted the planes when the bombs exploded. Little boy was an air-burst bomb. Air, or oxygen, was sucked away from gasping victims by the physics of incendiaries and explosives. Earth could protect people from the worst effects of the bombs if they hugged it or burrowed beneath it. It could just as easily betray them, becoming a tomb for those unlucky enough to be close to the bomb's targets. Fire, unhappily, is self-explanatory. People had no time to anticipate the blast, but if they survived the blast, they feared the spread of fire more than anything else. They saw and felt it coming. Tokyoites and Hiroshimans sought water as the antidote to fire. Rivers were the destinations of desperate survivors in both cities, and the most commonly heard cry following the attacks was the plaintive request for water to quench thirst and soothe burns. And there is another sense in which the bombings were elemental events. The shock they caused took their victims immediately back to elemental or basic drives and urges. Their first instinct was for self-preservation, but that was followed quickly or even occurred simultaneously with a frantic desire to find and save one's family. Amid the horror of the bombing's aftermath, that observation seems oddly encouraging. People sought safety, medical care, sustenance, comfort, and love. Their instincts were elemental and universal and make them seem human. This is the silver lining in the grim experiences I have recounted, and I was looking for silver linings as I wrote. I hope to inspire my readers' empathy for the bombed Japanese. I wanted the bombed to run, to try to save themselves and their kin, just as I hoped I would have run and taken my family with me in a similar situation. I empathized, in other words, with the agency of the bombed, with their refusal to stand in place and accept their fates. I admired the way they tried to help each other. So I included in my stories anecdotes about the ways in which they did so, pointing out to each other the way to safety, fighting fires, caring for the wounded, as Dr. Hachia did in Hiroshima. I noted, too, that some were reluctant to help others. They were paralyzed with horror or simply too self-absorbed to stop running away. There seemed a logic, noble and less so, in the way the bombed responded to their dire circumstances. My treatment was not, I hoped, some stereotyped version of what Japanese or Asians do under duress. It represented them not as nerveless, bloodthirsty, or fanatical, but as people faced with monstrous fate who nevertheless responded selfishly and heroically as humans do. 
Another similarity between these two accounts has to do with the frequency with which people in both cities tended to curb or mask their anger at the Americans, divert their anger elsewhere, or transform their anger into other emotions. Let it be said that in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, there were punishments exacted against Americans unlucky enough to be present. Recall the death of 62 American prisoners following a late spring raid in Tokyo. And know that after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, nearly two dozen American POWs were evidently beaten to death by enraged citizens. They had survived the bombing. They were underground. They were pulled out and beaten to death. In general, though, the bombed Japanese did not seem angry at the Americans. The historian Michael Sherry has suggested that anger might have been displaced by other emotions. Observers also noticed in both cities that people expressed anger at the Japanese military, political leadership, and even the emperor, who rode through the streets of Tokyo following the March firebombing and attracted grumbling and sidelong looks of disgust. Most often, Japanese in the two bombed cities tended, not, tended to blame not a nation or individuals, but abstractions or forces of nature for their plight. The young Hiroshima Yoshihiro Kimura blamed war for his mother's death. The atomic bomb itself was like a typhoon or simply Hiroshima's fate. Many in Tokyo compared the firebombing to the devastating earthquake and fire of 1923. Displacing the blame for the bombings in this way proved functional once Japan surrendered. The American occupation forces who arrived thereafter were thus agents of the inevitable, servants of nature or fate, rather than people who had chosen to subjugate the Japanese. It is far easier to accept the consequences of an earthquake or typhoon than to acknowledge defeat at the hands of fellow human beings. Let me here, finally, and I'll end here, return to my main point, along with asking listeners to hear the story of the Japanese bombed in 1945, I wish to argue for the essential continuity of the experience in Tokyo in March and Hiroshima in August. When I use similar language to describe these events, when I stress the nakedness, elementalness, and agency of human experience in both cities, I am claiming that the bombings were more alike than different. Above all, I wish to argue that bad as the atomic bomb was, the more significant threshold of terror had less to do with the weapon used to create it than with its target. The great crime of World War II, for that matter, of the 20th century, was the decision that non-combatants could be targeted from the air, an approach that rendered them particularly defenseless. Civilians had previously been used as hostages in war, and made its victims, as anyone reading Thucydides on the Peloponnesian Wars will know. But never before had non-combatants been aimed at so deliberately and powerfully, made primary targets rather than the unfortunate afterthoughts of statesmen and generals. It is in relating their common experience as victims, held along with Ethiopians and Spaniards, Dutch and Poles and Britons, Chinese and Germans and others, that the stories of the bombed Japanese can 
and must be told in tandem. Thank you. It must have been a very <laughs> sobering thing to hear. I'm happy to take questions. Yes. I was intrigued by your suggestion, which I think is a very good one, of a connection between the Taiwan trade experience in 1945 and the 1923 Tokyo Stock Exchange. Yeah. There is a kind of museum in Tokyo, it's a Buddhist society, that has exhibits that feature both of these things that other people have conceptualized. Wow. Can you tell me a little more about the display, the exhibition? I haven't seen it. Wow. Okay. Thank you for the comment. Hang on, let me turn this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, from the standpoint where you're looking at it, the only real difference, since they didn't know about radiation yet, was two was that one was done by a huge number of B-29s and one was done by one. Yeah, I mean, there's something kind of psychologically stunning about that. And uh, you, you probably know the story. It, this is the second passage by, well, in this case, there were three planes. But one B-29 had flown over Hiroshima earlier that morning. And there was a Japanese air raid siren. And people who'd been in and out of shelters all night went back into shelters. This was about 7 o'clock in the morning. And uh, the, the B-29 passed over. and didn't, Nothing happened. It was only one plane, so nothing to worry about. So later, at 8.15, when these bombers came over, including the Enola Gay came over, there was no air defense signal. The assumption was, again, one bomber or three bombers couldn't do any damage. The first one hadn't. So that's why people did not go to shelters when the atomic bomb was dropped. And, yeah, I think there was a psychological effect, and a lot of people discussed that, that uh, the Americans, more Americans were putting themselves in harm's way when they attacked Tokyo because there were more of them in B-29s. They flew lower. It was riskier. Therefore, it was somehow more fair um, than a single <coughs> bomb that dropped a heretofore unknown weapon. So there was that. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to say about the difference between one bomber and a bunch of bombers, but it's slipped away. Maybe I'll think of it and come back to it. That, that's my response so far. Do you want to follow up? Oh, radiation. Oh, I know what it was. It was radiation. Well, you said sort of in passing at the start that, that they didn't know about radiation. They did know about radiation. One of the great mysteries of the whole episode is that there was pretty clear, uh, a pretty clear understanding that, that a lot of radiation, damaging radiation, would be produced from this blast um, as early as the first British studies that found an atomic bomb was feasible. So this was 1939, 1940. Uh, somehow that slipped away. Um, there wasn't much about radiation. The official uh, account of the atomic bomb had very little about radiation in it. It did come up at one discussion uh, on the interim committee, and, and Oppenheimer was there, Robert Oppenheimer, and they asked him about it. He said, well... Our estimates show that anyone who gets a lethal dose, dose of radiation from this bomb will already be dead because he or she will have been killed by blast or fire. So, yes, radiation is a terrible thing, but you're radiating corpses at this point. And he was wrong. Okay. Yeah. No, but my, my question is based upon the Japanese perspective. Did they see it as peculiar because there was no one bomb? Does that add 
add anything particular to their immediate reaction? Yeah, I think the sense of shock was greater. Uh, again, as I said, in Tokyo, there had been raids before. They kind of knew what this was about. This was an especially bad one. It was all firebombs. Um, you know, they were flying low. It was, you know, the mad mastery of, of, of Curtis LeMay to be able to devise a raid of this power. But they did know kind of what, you know, a bunch of planes could do. Uh, so, yeah, I think there was, in short, a, an additional psychological impact of the fact that this had come from one bomb, one plane. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Well, the Enola Gay didn't fly over twice. Um, another bomber, as I said, did fly over. And, yeah, they were always sampling the amount of resistance they would get. By that time, it wasn't extensive. Do you know wasn't more about that, this? Wasn't that first flight a weather recon report? Yeah, that's right. Um, they were always looking for intelligence. By that time, they weren't terribly worried about um, interceptors or flak, there just wasn't much. Japan had been pretty well reduced by that time. I mean, it, it was dangerous, and you, you read this more actually in the account of the, the Nagasaki bomb, that there was some pretty significant flak there. But uh, that isn't why the plane flew over, the first plane flew over. Um, they, they were very interested in knowing the lay of the land. Obviously, they couldn't afford to have this mission fail. They couldn't afford to have the Enola Gay shot down. So they did want to make sure they had a clear target. As for whether this was an experiment or not, whether they were trying to, to do the maximum damage, yes, they were, absolutely. In choosing the target in Hiroshima, they chose the center of Hiroshima. They weren't, uh, they weren't interested in, in a suggestion made by James Franck and, and some others that, well, why don't we test the bomb first somewhere else, uh, on a desert island, he said. We'll show the Japanese how powerful the bomb is by showing the kind of destructive range it has, but we won't kill people, and maybe that will move the Japanese to surrender. And that suggestion was, of course, ignored uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly didn't know how the Japanese would respond, what if the bomb was a dud, what if they brought American prisoners to this island and killed them as a result of this. He wanted to achieve the element of surprise. 
The word experiment suggests something else, and I think it's worth mentioning, that a number of the scientists who had built the atomic bomb were at once horrified and fascinated with their work. That many of them had been involved originally because they thought the U.S. was racing Germany. They were convinced that the Germans were close or might be close to getting an atomic bomb. It turned out that wasn't true. But that would be a terrible thing, they felt, if the Nazis got the bomb first. They weren't so concerned with the Japanese. And in fact, when the Germans surrendered before the American bomb was built, a number of these scientists said, enough. We don't have to use the bomb on the Japanese because the Japanese don't rise to the level of evil that the Nazis do. We were building the bomb to be used against the Nazis, not the Japanese. But again, there's a kind of continuum here. It's war. There's an enemy. There's a momentum behind the bomb. And most of all, we're all killing civilians now. This is just a more efficient way to do it. If it works, if we shock them out of the war, then it's much better. It's much better because no Americans, no more Americans will die. So let's, let's do it. Well, they don't tell those stories right away. Uh, there's some sense of shame involved, and, and part of it has to do with the victims feeling shame. Uh, the victims were ostracized in Japanese society. They were a reminder of defeat um, and hard to look at. And they themselves <coughs> often didn't want attention because they felt ashamed at what had happened to them for some reason. They felt at work and physically <clears throat> monstrous, they believed. Uh, and so there was a tendency to want to silence any memory of the bomb, which worked out just fine with the Americans, who really didn't want the Japanese talking about this very much. Um, and so for a while, there was a kind of polite conspiracy of silence about the victims of the bomb, about the atomic bombing. And that began to change really around the time of the end of the American occupation in the 50s. And uh, people in Hiroshima came to believe that the city should remember the bomb, should dedicate itself to peace. I can't remember when the museum was first 
conceived. Does anyone know? It opened in 55? Okay, so yeah. Um, you know, early to mid-50s is when this consciousness, I think, begins to emerge that this should be remembered, commemorated, and more attention ought to be paid to the victims of the bomb. Now, when the museum first opened, uh, there was a strong sense of uh, the Japanese as victims, the Japanese at Hiroshima, and by extension, the Japanese generally in the Pacific War had been victimized by the Americans. And there were objections to the ways in which the exhibitions were set out. There was nothing about the fact that, for instance, Hiroshima had been a major military base, for a long time had been, and indeed was the debarkation point for the Japanese armies going to the Asian mainland. Uh, there was industry in Hiroshima. It wasn't just a wanton attack on civilians. It was also, uh, in its way, a military target. And this was the story that, that, that Truman and, and Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, told themselves, that it was only a military target. It was okay to do this because you were targeting the source of Japanese aggression. And of course, a, an atomic bomb doesn't discriminate in that way. You, you can't drop an atomic bomb and expect that only the people in uniform will drop dead and the civilians will miraculously survive. And that didn't happen. But this was part of the self-delusion of Truman and others. I think something they really had to do to convince themselves that this was a weapon like any other. Yeah. Yeah. The Japanese were told, not explicitly, that the United States had an atomic bomb, but that Japan was hereby warned that it would face prompt and utter destruction if it didn't surrender unconditionally. Unconditional surrender had been the demand all along, and the Japanese were disinclined, although they were clearly looking for ways to get discussions started that summer. There were serious splits in the Japanese war cabinet, some wanted to fight on at all costs, some were willing to surrender if the United States would concede certain conditions. But as I said, I think briefly in the talk, uh, no one at that point said, no one in the summer, no one in July of 1945 in Japan said, let's just give up. There was always a condition or several conditions usually that had to be met. So the Japanese rejected, there's some controversy over the use of the Japanese word, whether it means ignored or turned their back on. Someone will know this better than I. Uh, but the Japanese did not respond to Potsdam by saying, okay, we will surrender unconditionally. Um, Truman did learn of the atomic bomb at Potsdam, and it certainly boosted him psychologically. Everyone commented that the man who had come to his first summit conference, rather nervous, intimidated about meeting Stalin and Churchill, suddenly seemed pepped up. Uh, Churchill noticed it, his aides noticed it, and the reason was he had heard about the successful test at Alamogordo. This gave him a sort of trump card. Now, what do you tell the Russians at that point? Truman decided he would take Stalin aside, and it's a famous story, he takes him to the corner of the room and 
uh, and says, uh, we have uh, successfully tested a new weapon. It doesn't say atomic bomb. It's a new weapon. And Stalin says, that's good. I hope you'll use it to win the war. And that's all. He didn't press Truman to tell him anything more about it. But Stalin absolutely did know that this was an atomic bomb. Soviets had good intelligence about what the Americans were up to, even though Truman didn't believe it. Now, as for the Soviet factor, this, as you know, is a uh, a controversial matter in in, um, the historiography of the atomic bomb. There are those, uh, among them Gar Alperovitz, who have said that this was the chief reason why the United States dropped the bomb on Japan. The U.S. knew that Japan, or should have known that Japan was about to surrender on its last legs, could have won an unconditional or nearly unconditional surrender of Japan without the use of the atomic bombs, but dropped the bombs in order to intimidate the Soviets, in order to end the war more quickly so the Soviets wouldn't have a say in the occupation authority in Japan. It's there. Uh, I talk about this in the book. In the end, I kind of come down with, with my advisor, Bart Bernstein, who's written a lot about this and in a much more scholarly way than I do, uh, that this was a diplomatic bonus. Burns felt it acutely. This was a really good reason to use the atomic bomb, but it wasn't the main reason to use the atomic bomb. The main reason to use the atomic bomb was there was really no good reason not to. Let's end the war. If this will work, if this will stop the war a day sooner, why not? We've already bombed Japanese cities. We've killed civilians. They've killed our civilians. It all's fair. Anything goes. I think it's, it's crucial to understand the context within which Germans operating and American senior advisors are operating uh, in uh, uh, June and early July of 1945. And what they are confronting is, first of all, um, a knowledge of how the Japanese have treated American prisoners, yeah. a record in China, which if you go to the Yakuni Shrine, which is a shrine to Japanese victimhood, uh, and their wonderful efforts to bring order to a disordered, uh, murderous China. Um, no conne- connection to history at all. Um, uh, so, so the American attitudes towards Japan have been reinforced by the fact that we had liberated prisoners in the Philippines who had been on the, on the Philippine death march. So that was out there in terms of Japanese behavior. But I think the most important factor is the military reality of the fact that Operation Olympic, which was going to go ahead um, uh, um, uh, uh, in November of 1945, was looking at 450,000 Japanese troops on Kyushu and the fact that that the the ultra magic stuff, which has only recently been uh, released, indicates the Japanese government and military were showing absolutely no signs of of caving in. So the Perowitz argument that they were on the brink of surrender just ain't there. And Mark Bernstein has now moved into the, the, that camp uh, uh, along with people like Richard Frank. Uh, and uh, uh, um, the shock of the bomb in terms of it, its impact on the senior levels of the Japanese government was sufficient to finally allow Hirohito to step in. Well, there is controversy about, about that, about which of the factors at the end finally caused the Japanese to concede, and Tsuyoshi Hasegawa and several others have argued that it was the intervention by the Soviet Union, the declaration of war by the Soviets, which comes on the 8th of August, that was crucial. Um, They don't say the bomb was without significance. They could hardly say that. But their reading of the remaining Japanese record tells them that the Soviet involvement in war was more important. I, you know, I don't read that record, so I, I, you know, I'm not in position to say with any certainty. My sense of it is that it would be <coughs> counterintuitive, 
counter-commonsensical to imagine that the atomic bombs didn't have an impact. And indeed, when, when the emperor uh, announces surrender, he says, you know, we have been hit with these terrible weapons. And there's, there's no ambiguity there. Certainly the bombs were an important reason why this happened. Now, to go to the matter of, uh, I don't know if anyone's going to ask me this, but I'll respond to the question I haven't been asked or maybe haven't quite been asked. And that is the question of how many... Americans would have died in an invasion of uh, first Kyushu and then Hanshu, the main island. There's a big controversy about this, as you know. Um, on this, burn no, no, there's still, there's still a controversy about it. Yeah, there is. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because if Truman thought that one American soldier would die by falling off a troop transport the moment before the Japanese surrendered, he would have dropped the atomic bombs anyway. I don't care what the number is. It could be 10, it could be a million. He was still going to drop the atomic bombs. That's what I think. Yeah. I think you asked the wrong question. Which one? By the way, welcome to Ohio State, the proud ROTC home of Curtis LeMay. <laughs> and you may genuflect at his statue outside the ROTC building on your way out. Uh, I think I'm over to see the plot. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Um, the, the real question is, is if we don't drop the atomic bombs and we don't firebomb Tokyo, what are the alter- what is the alternative? And... Let me suggest two. What did you change from R to is? What are the alternatives, right? There are several. Are there not? Yes, there are. All right? So one of the, um, one of the and I'm going to talk about two of them. Okay. One of the alternatives is the airmen follow the model of the uh, air campaign in Europe, which by the end of the war targets the German transportation system <clears throat> and shuts it down at the end of the war, which is why there's no German uh, final offensive or final defensive stand in Germany because uh, trains can't move around, nothing's moving around the country. If that happens in Japan, we shut down the Japanese transportation system, I would think, and I think Richard Frank shows this in his book, Downfall, is that there's going to be mass starvation in the Japanese home islands because they're not going to be able to move food around the country. So instead of uh, a million, you know, several hundred thousand people dying in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you're going to have millions die of starvation um, as we target the Japanese transportation system. The second possibility is that we do launch that invasion. But you asked the wrong question. The, the question is not how many Americans are going to die if we invade. The question is how many Japanese die if we invade. And my uh, study of the campaigns in which there are significant numbers of civilians in the Pacific, Saipan, Okinawa, and the Philippines, suggests that millions of Japanese civilians would have died in those ground invasions as we ground forward against the Japanese forces on home islands. And it would have been far worse than had we dropped the atomic bombs to end the war. So I, th- I think that's true, but who's asking those questions? I am. The Americans aren't. No. They don't care. They, they don't care how many Japanese civilians are going to die. They care very much about how many American soldiers are going to die. Right. But, but, a, but a Japanese but civilian is worth a lot less than an American soldier. As I'm not doing. I don't think I did. You know, he used the word crime in reference to the decision to bomb civilians. Yeah. But that goes back to your the right. firebombing of Tokyo, not the bombing. Well, and, and all of these events in which civilians were bombed during World War II, during World War One. yeah. Okay, I'll stand by that. Well, what are the choices? And that's the problem. If you look at the, the campaign against Germany, uh, um, there is no other solution to, uh, to if you will, take it down Well, that's what they were finding. Uh, whether that was the only way to go, I, you know, I will take the fifth. I don't know. You see the aftermath in terms of bombing civilians. What do you 
impact of that whole process in, in the last 50 years hmm. has been on our culture and our uh, <coughs> identification as, as U.S. citizens and so on? What, what do you think some of the other impacts? Well, I wish it had been more. I have to say, speaking of wrong questions being asked, I, I, I think we are still a little too obsessed about the nature of weapons used rather than the nature of targets. I think the real discussion needs constantly to be on who is getting killed. I think there's some recognition, certainly in U.S. military doctrine, about this. The idea that this is collateral damage. This is not desirable uh, to kill civilians. You obviously don't want to kill civilians. Uh, it's not exactly part of Al-Qaeda's military doctrine, uh, where civilians, and no one's a civilian, as far as they're concerned. Um, but I think that's where the emphasis has to be. That's where the condemnation has to be placed. I think it's, it's difficult. Uh, we, we have to have these discussions, obviously, about the nature of weapons and you know, whether uh, chemical, biological weapons are worse than atomic weapons, or whether firebombing is worse than a, an atomic bomb. We're going to have those discussions anyway. But for me, the focus needs to be on who gets killed, who you're aiming at. And I think... To me, it is a crime when you're aiming at non-combatants. Now, deciding who's a non-combatant, that could be a very interesting discussion. Is someone who's working in a factory that's producing material for war a non-combatant? Does, let's say she is, if she's in the factory, what if she goes home at night? Do you have the right to dehouse that war worker when she has relinquished her war-making status for the night and she's back at home with her family? It's a tough question. I acknowledge it's a tough question. But to me, the first line you draw, the brightest line you try to draw is you don't target civilians. You don't target noncombatants. And then you start having these arguments about who that, who's in that category, as many as possible, in my view. Yeah? If the Japanese defense minister is making speeches about 100 million die together and seems to be getting a favorable response, does that mean there are arguments about that? Yes, I think there are. I don't think when you say seem to be getting a favorable response. I'm not sure what that means. The Japanese were not asked to vote on this. Um, and by the end, as I, as I did say, it, right, you know, by the end, um, the Japanese are fed up. They're tired of war. They want it to be over. Um, it, you know, it's a horrible thing. It's a different kind of culture, obviously. Uh, but um, I don't think it's reasonable to say that the entire population of Japan uh, was made up of combatants. They all you know, acquiesced to, participated in the war effort any more than American civilians did. I think there is a distinction to be made. Sure. Andy, we talked a little bit about wrong questions being asked. When we look at the Alperovitz debate, I think we still haven't gotten at the right question. The question is not the numbers of Americans who would have been killed or the number of Japanese that would have been killed. In the Al-Karabit's debate, the question is, what did Truman believe about the likelihood of the war continuing, that the invasion of uh, Hanchu or even the, uh, the invasion in November 45 was going to go forward? Now, the consensus around the room seems to be that there was no rational reason for Truman to believe that the Japanese were going to surrender. But if we are to make that argument, what do we do with all of Truman's writings from Potsdam, uh, the famous telegram about the Jap emperor asking for peace, him writing back to his wife about him getting what he wanted, Stalin was coming into the war, think of all those boys who wouldn't be killed, right. uh, about the notion that the Japanese were going to fold up before uh, Manhattan, I think is a quote, appears over there. Feeny, Feeny Japs, when Feeny that takes, Jap, when the little boy appears is over it, their homeland, is, yeah. Is it, can we now in historiography completely dismiss the idea that Truman might have believed, that, and the strategic bombing survey is saying this as well, that 
the Japanese were going to surrender before either of these major invasions took place? Um, I don't think he really knew. Um, I think he inherited a secret, expensive project that his far more illustrious predecessor had started. He didn't know anything about it until the night after he was sworn in. Who was he to say, let's ask serious questions about this? Let's really think hard about the possible ethical consequences of dropping this bomb. Are we sure we know all we need to know about radiation? That isn't where his mind is. Here is a weapon. He's being given a weapon that will end the war more quickly, he hopes. And it's, there's a kind of momentum behind that, that, that he's unwilling to stop. He's unwilling even to think about stopping. So I think happily or unhappily, you know, whatever you want to say, that's it. And there are other people in the administration who are pursuing other interests who are thinking more carefully about the bomb and, and its implications. Stimson, certainly. Uh, and it's remarkable to me, not just Stimson, but the other members of the interim committee spend so little time talking about Japan at all. They're talking about post-war control of atomic energy. What are we going to do when the war is over? Are we going to share this secret? They believe it's a secret, and, and the conceit of the book, or the thesis of the book, is that there is no secret to the atomic bomb. There's good physics going on everywhere. It really is a matter of commitment and resources. If you want to build a bomb, you build a bomb if you have the kind of apparatus the Soviets do, and they do very quickly. Um, but they're just not that focused on Japan, Japan, Japan. Japan's still in the war. They're an enemy. It could have been any enemy. We have a bomb. We have a chance to end the war quickly. Let's, let's take it. Why not? Thank you. Sorry about the lunch. I'm really sorry. It's interesting how quickly people move, even without indicating it as such, to talk about.